I was at the Whammies in January of 2020, and that's Danny Harrison, George's son. During the Grammys, he always rents out a club, calls his friends together, they play music all night, and they choose one band, and they just cover songs, right? Right. For that band. And I don't even know if it's a fundraiser. He just does it for fun. But anyway, I get uh, my dear friend, Jewel, kind of has me as plus one. Hey, you want to come out to the Whammy? So sure, I go do that. And literally, you know, think the artists there were Perry Farrell, Lisa Loeb. I think uh, I know where this is going because yeah. this is not one of those type of people is what you're saying with this yes, celebrity. I mean, I'm like <laughs> teeing you up here. I'm throwing a huge softball for you. But so anyway, so I go to the way Butch Walker's uh, one of the artists there. Um, Richard Marks, you know, these are these are the, the folks there and they're all playing cover songs and they're covering the traveling Wilburys. Um, and so it gives you you can go anywhere that any you know any of those artists uh dig traveling wheelberries were what tom petty who else uh roy orbison jeff lynn from yellow yellow right. and then obviously oh, george harrison yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and i think dylan was in it. yeah so so anyway the star that night like far and away the star the person that crushed it because You've got all these talented artists, but they haven't rehearsed anything. So it, it's it's literally cover band level stuff. The star of that night was actually Weird Al Yankovic. And he got up there and he played it straight. He didn't, he did a Travoy, uh, 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 oh, what song? Um, anyway, he did I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty. With, with or without the accordion? If without the accordion. Oh, okay. Without the accordion. Yeah. Um, and I'm blanking the the name of the Beatles song he did. Just crushed it. Was amazing. And uh, so when I was in the green room with all the artists, I was like, "Hey, no, no, all due respect to the artists in this room. I'm so excited about seeing Weird Al. All the artists in there wanted to see Weird Al. So he took a group photo with him and all that. Um, so anyway, I saw him late in the night, and I go, "Man, I did not know that my man crush could be any more." on you than it is right now but it, it just is and he goes you want to hug it out and i said <laughs> sure i did i think you can nice. flex though on I, that story. i do i do have a a weird al yankovic um celebrity encounter story and i think it's the rare podcast where you get two of these so yeah and I, I went to law school at ucla and i think it was the spring of 93 it was one of our law school formals but uh Weird Al Yankovic was dating a law student at the time, and so Weird Al Yankovic was actually at my law school formal in in sometime in the early mid mid nineties. So yeah, it was a it was it was also I did not talk to Weird Al. I was not as bold as you were, but um, I uh, I did have an encounter with uh, Weird Al Yankovic going back thirty years now. Oh, see, I've conflated that into my head to like y'all were drinking buddies every weekend. He was bringing <laughs> well, that you that is what happens in Chuck's head, right? <laughs> you know, it is it is a good story. If so, I'd have been in the yeah, story, yeah. So no, I think you outdid me on that story. But hey, yeah. we, we both got our our weird Al Yankovic uh, moments. So that's yeah. Savoy Truffle. <laughs>
that was the, okay. the, uh, the other it. song Got he it. did. I don't know why I was stumbling on it. I normally don't record this early in the morning. The So you went to UCLA Law School because we met back at Rice. Correct. Yeah. And I'm a, I'll, yeah, don't pop, don't pop your hands. <laughs> the, uh, but um, no, so we met back at Rice because you were Brother Jay's somehow roommate. Right. You're, first, you're younger than I I am. first knew of you because you were a... Um, a orientation week advisor for will rice so i was okay a freshman so you were that you were year. a sophomore and yeah you were one of the o-week advisors and you were uh even then a little bit larger than life so everybody <laughs> kind of knew who chuck was yeah. yeah i remember i had a, a freshman in my group that was 32 years old and she was a retired ballerina who was going to go back to college you know she high school had a professional ballerina career and i didn't i didn't know this but ballerinas have careers kind of on par with an in, uh, nfl running back you know you got a good five six years and that that's sort of it and uh i remember it was funny because i called her as you call all your freshmen i'm like hey you know we're getting ready for this and she goes well i'm, I'm not gonna be there i'm like married i you know i'm gonna show up for classes on i go but we really need somebody to be able to buy the beer when you're of age. <laughs> for me too. Yeah. yeah, for me too. I'm not 21 yet. So anyway, that was right. Good. But um, no, so you end up going to law school. Real quick, tell my, you know, normally my device in the podcast at this moment is tell me about your background because mom's listening. Mom actually knows this. Right. Hi, hi Sally. I, I'm Keith. I was at your house for Thanksgiving a few times. So. <laughs> But uh, walk me through kind of your career, because you're because you, where we're going to go with this is uh, I've actually sent a couple of people to you, and I want to hear those stories because I think it's pretty interesting of uh, the law you're doing. Right. So um, went to Rice as an undergrad, was a economics and sociology major, actually. Really, until my senior year of college, even debated about going to sociology grad school. So I took the GRE and the LSAT, uh, looked at both law schools and sociology grad schools. And, and back then, when you were a sociology grad student um, you or PhD, you became a sociology professor. And that was about it. And so the more I looked at those two things, I looked at law school and the coursework in law school, that, that really became more of an interest to me. Part of the reason I went out to L.A. is I had heard somewhere that all the record executives were lawyers. So I kind of wanted to be a record executive. And and uh, I went out to, which is a good thing I didn't because there's really not much of a record industry to, to, to speak of right now. So when I went out to L.A. Um, and went to law school at UCLA, a funny thing happened is I ended up liking law school more than I thought I would. I thought it was just sort of means to an end, but I ended up really enjoying it and and just liking uh, the, the practice of law or the study of law generally. And so I, um, I had some su summer back in Houston, had an offer for Baker Botts, big firm here in town, coming back to Houston. But I ended up getting a job my first year out of law school with a, uh, a appellate judge named Charles Wiggins out of, out of Reno. who was on the Ninth Circuit, one of the big court of appeals out there. And so I worked there for a year. And that was a great job, probably the probably the best job I, I ever had. Don't tell my current employers. But um, and I came back to Houston and um, I'd always wanted to do uh, intellectual property law. And when you're intellectual property law to most people means patents. Right. And so a lot of the big intellectual property firms, they do a lot of patent work. And they said, well, we you know, we really want somebody with a technical degree. I didn't have a technical degree. So I, you know, I started a big firm, started in the trial section and you get in a big firm and they have a lot of big patent cases, especially back then. And I came and um, said I was interested in uh, 
in doing patent law or patent litigation. They were like, oh, sure. Yeah, we'll let you work on patent cases. So about two weeks into my time there, I got sucked into a, a big patent case or two pa big patent cases between Exxon and Mobil when they were separate companies, one in the Eastern District of Virginia, which is known as the rocket docket. It's about nine months from the start of the uh, filing of a case till you get to trial as compared to about two or three years in most other places. And then there was another case here down in, in Texas. So did that for about 75% of the time and uh, of, my, of my first two years there and just really got into patent litigation and, and, and did, so, did a variety of other little things as well too. Oh, interesting. So the, um, the thing I, I like whenever I mess with kind of patent litigation stuff or start thinking about it and the like is the question is always just like, how messed up is it? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it just, it seems like anybody can file a patent for anything and nothing gets ruled on until there's an actual case about it. Is that right? I, I think it's, it's probably better than you think uh, it is. Um, I, I don't think anybody can get a patent on anything. I think the, I think the patent office has gotten better about that. I, I think um, there are certainly frustrating patent examiners. I think I don't, I don't prosecute patents, um, not not having a technical degree. I'm not someone who gets patents for people, but uh, I do litigate them. And I think it has gotten somewhat better. Um, and it, but it does cost a lot of money to enforce them or to to try to invalidate them. So that is probably the frustrating part of it uh, for, for a lot of people who other than lawyers uh, is, is that uh, it does cost a lot of money to enforce patents or or to um, to invalidate them if someone is asserting patent against you. I mean, there was more 10 to 20 years ago problems with what are known as patent trolls, you know, people who would just, like you said, fire, file patents on minor things, especially in the early days of the Internet. People had come up with sort of a broad concept of, hey, do this, but on the Internet. And um, there were a lot of so-called patent trolls who who held a lot of large companies up for ransom or, or for a lot of companies for $50,000 at a time and whatnot and, and did quite well. Uh, but I think that's that's become less of a problem uh, just because courts are more inclined to find that patents, patents are invalid because they don't really cover a patentable invention or because or, or just entertain summary judgment early on just because there's been so many of those cases that courts, I think, have got, been gotten better at uh, disposing of those cases more quickly. So it was kind of court driven as opposed to anything legislative driven. There were some, we... yeah, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. There are some, uh, some legislative changes as far as, um, as far as jurisdictional issues, as far as where you can sue people. Um, some of that was court driven as well too, but it's, it's harder just to sue Microsoft, for instance, in some small in the Eastern district of Texas, for instance, was a, was a very active place for patent litigation. You have to the the courts through the interpretation of uh, of case law and also some efforts of of Congress. It's a little bit harder to just sue a company anywhere now. It has to be more where they have a permanent place of business that you have to have to sue people. So did thanks. you did you ever know Steve Fowler? So Steve Fowler was Will Rice, but he's Steve left Rice before I got there. So if I'm a year, he's so he's he's got to be you know, six, seven years. I know that. Yeah. He, uh, he started a company right when he, uh, so he left rice, went to Oracle when he left Oracle and started his own com company. He, he, uh, operated under macro soft. 
and then, it didn't, he, didn't last long. He, yeah, he gets threatening letters <laughs> right, from, right. from Macro, Macrosoft all the time. He's right. like, what are you talking about? It's an A, not an I. But Yeah, so tra- and trademark law is another thing I do now, which is a, which is a real interesting area as well, too. Um, and that, that, that's something that evolved into my career over time. And really, in the last 10 years, that's, I do as much of that as, as anything. Because um, after starting at the big firm, BakerBots, and being there for five years, then I went off to what was essentially a spinoff of BakerBots, a firm called first Slusser and Frost, and then Slusser, Wilson, and Partridge, and, and did really just patent litigation uh, for the next seven or eight years. I had previously at, at BakerBots, I'd done some employment law, uh, which is how I kind of got into dealing with non-competes and, and, and uh, non-solicitation agreements and confidentiality agreements and whatnot, and also did a little bit of antitrust. And so after I was at, at the, the patent litigation boutique, then I went to a law firm called Patterson and Sheridan, and they did primarily patent prosecution, and I kind of became the everything else department. I did, uh, I did a lot of trademarks there. That's where I picked up a lot of trademark work. So how does, how does Pat Riley trademark 3P? <laughs> I mean, that, that's a good question. Uh, he probably, probably shouldn't have been able to um, because he wasn't really the person who created the, it in the first place. Uh, and it's really a, just descriptive of of a thing happening as opposed to a brand. But the the real answer is he did it, and nobody really wanted to spend the money to challenge it. It's it's cheaper to license it from Pat Riley than it is to to try to challenge it. But yeah, actually, when I was at UCLA, I, a colleague, a friend of mine, actually wrote a a law review article about why you shouldn't be able to uh, trademark three P because it's not really a a you know he didn't he hadn't really attached it to any goods or services at the time that he trademarked it. And you really, that's really the key to getting a trademark. You can't just say, hey, I have this great term and I want to trademark it so nobody else can use it. What you actually have to do to get that to mature into a registration that you can then protect is attach it to to goods and services and and use it in connection with promoting those services. For instance, Digital Wildcatter, that's that's you guys provide podcast services or you, or you. Uh, have podcasts and whatnot, so you could register digital wildcatters as as covering uh, the the uh, providing of, of podcasts for downloading on the internet as as your trademark. The because I mean, so is the concept with trademark similar to patent? Is we're going to spend money in effect on something we should be able to derive the right from that something and have some level of protection it, it is. against it, it I, you can't be macro soft it, it is similar yes um the thing about trademarks is they're a lot cheaper i mean you can you can usually get a trademark registration for two to three thousand dollars a patent usually costs twenty thousand to forty thousand dollars um the 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 difference would be patents require novelty something new compared to what's out there before uh, trademarks, as you probably know, you can have a lot of the same trademarks, but covering different goods and services owned by different, different people. I, I, I can't think of any examples right now, but for instance, you know, if you had a, um, uh, you could probably think of, of like Ford, for instance, Ford vehicles. I'm sure there's people have registrations for Ford covering other kinds of goods and services and things like that, because the ultimate question in trademarks is, is there likelihood a likelihood of confusion between these two these two uses of the trademark? So, if somebody, for instance, were to have Ford wine, uh, would Ford Motor Company be able to stop them from using that? Probably not, uh, because people are not going to naturally assume that wine and and cars are associated. Now, if you get into 
uh, cars and auto mechanic services, then, well, those are things that likely you have those two kinds of people that, that might, uh, you might have one provider that would provide those kinds of services and those goods. So, so it would create a likelihood of confusion if those two different entities were able to use the same trademark. So you're doing litigation. Do you have a rant? And I have as much time as you want, but do you have a rant of what you would want to tell CEOs at time zero? Because my sense is you're dealing with someone when they've been sued or they need to sue someone and you go back and go, God, why didn't you just for $2,000 trademark nimble fatty or, you know, whatever. Do you have kind of the, uh, the fireside chat you would want to give a CEO at time zero? Uh, for trademarks, um, trademarks, it's pretty easy to avoid problems. So there are, there is sometimes high stakes trademark litigations between two companies who might come up with similar marks at the same time and neither of them wants to give. But trademark, it's usually pretty easy to avoid getting to the point of, of expensive litigation because the usual step in, if you are infringing someone's trademark and what you're doing is too similar to what they're doing, you usually get a cease and desist letter, right? Okay. And then you're at a crossroads. And, and oftentimes, when my, if my clients get those letters, Maybe they have an application on file. It's been on file for four or six months. They haven't, um, they haven't really spent a lot of money They've, uh, on, the, on the application. Their company is just sort of getting going. Maybe they have a few customers. Maybe they don't. And at that point, you're at a crossroads. And it's, well, do I spend the money to fight this? Or do I just go ahead and change my name? And how much value does your name really have at that point? And do you really think that what you're doing is different than what somebody else is doing? Or that your mark is different? So... Usually you can avoid litigation at that point where you just change your name. I mean, that's, that's if you, now, if you had done your searches beforehand and made sure your name wasn't similar, too similar to somebody else's or went ahead and registered yours, uh, then, then you wouldn't have had that issue because the real benefit of registration is if you, let's say you're in, in, you have an oil and gas product or service that you're promoting in the Permian Basin and you've got a name that you're using, let's just say quick drill just as as an example. And then the real benefit of registering it is if you file your application, at that point, you're presumed to have national use of that mark. Whereas if you don't register it and you're using Quick Drill and Permian Basin, and then somebody starts using it for a similar product, the name Quick Drill for a similar product in Oklahoma, then you get into a priority fight. It's like, who came up with this first? Is, you know, is there going to, is somebody going to naturally assume that someone in the Permian Basin is the same provider as someone in Oklahoma. Whereas you don't have to worry about that if you have a trademark registration or application that leads to a registration because you are presumed to have national rights at this point. So that's what it really saves you from is this fight over, well, do I have to prove the geographical reach of my mark and that somebody in Oklahoma would naturally assume that that I was somebody, uh, somebody using the mark in Oklahoma was associated with someone in the Permian Basin you don't have to worry about that if you spend a couple thousand dollars to get your trademark registration early on. So is there like, is there a big famous case where there are tons of dollars spent on, on trademark stuff or, I mean, cause I get your, I've, I've, I started a company called true tracker and went through all the trademark stuff. And yeah, there was a true tracker that did cat litter or something. And you're like, oh, okay, well that's not an oil product. And and the like. Right. So I kind of get what you're saying. But now that you've laid it out, 
I can't really think. I mean, the only case I can think of that was was when Southwest Airlines just messed up on their frequent flyer program and literally took a name that was already in use and, right. and realized, realized later, oops, after they'd spent a ton of money, they made a mistake. There are probably not a lot, necessarily a lot of high profile fights between big companies over day. Well, actually, the most recent one I can give you an example of. Uh, there's a there's a brewery in a California called Stone Brewing, famous for IPA. Maybe you've maybe you've heard of them. Um, but they're they're a big brewery called Stone, famous for their IPAs. Well, Coors, of course, has Keystone, right? And they yeah. they started to use uh, they they relabeled their cans where the stone the key was on one side of the can and the stone was very large on the other side of the can. So Stone Brewing sued them for trademark infringement, saying they were using stone as, as a mark. I didn't think there was much merit to the case. I mean, there's not a lot of overlap between a craft brewer w- w- who makes an IPA and Keystone Light. There's not a lot of confusion among those, among those drinkers, not a lot of uh, cross-pollination between those drinkers. So I didn't think there was much to the case, but Stone ended up being successful in that case. So that's an example of... It's not that they were just calling their beer stone. It's that the way they were portraying their mark Keystone made it look like they were just uh, saying their name was Stone. A lot of the, the big litigation is, is over um, people just trying to get trademarks registered. Like for years, Hotels.com had to fight to try to get the, the, registry, the registration of Hotels.com because what the trademark office said is that's just a generic mark. All you're saying, Hotels.com is just obviously a description of a website where you can make hotel reservations. But after they had, finally, after they had had enough years of using the mark, people associated Hotels.com with that particular website and they were able to register it. So that's sort of an example of some of the sort of long-term trademark uh, litigation. We could talk about uh, Taco Cabana in two paces if you wanted to. That's oh, yeah. probably... So Let's go old school. Uh, right, right. So uh, trade dress is is kind of a unique issue. And I think you called me after I'd, I'd, I'd been on Fox News um, talking about the, the University of Houston getting a cease and desist letter from the NFL over, over their um, using Oilers throwback jerseys at one of, their, uh, one of their games. So just for those who aren't familiar with that, so the University of Houston, they used sort of the love you blue, light powder blue uniforms at one of their games. And they got a letter from the NFL saying, hey, we don't want you to do that anymore, essentially, or threatening to sue. Um, and so that that relates to something called trade dress. So trade dress is sort of a subset of of uh, of trademarks where uh, you can protect the look and feel of your product or uh, or your color scheme. A famous example of that is uh, Owens Corning, the pink insulation. You know, they have a trademark over pink for insulation because that's not a natural color for insulation. So nobody other than them can make pink insulation. So years ago, about 30 years ago, um, there was a Supreme case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, which was Taco Cabana versus Two Pesos. So those of you who grew up in Houston, the 80s and 90s, right, might remember Two Pesos. If you don't think of Taco Cabana now, it was a very similar appearing uh, restaurant to uh, to taco cabana and fast fast food mexican a step up from taco exactly Bell. exactly yeah. and taco cabana ended up suing two pesos for infringement of their trade dress the, the colors weren't exactly the same but sort of the layout of the restaurant the menu was similar the the color schemes were a similar sort of miami you know style color scheme i guess what you would call it and they were actually successful in that now in that case 
Um, there were apparently a lot of bad facts. The guys who started two pesos had been associated with Taco Cabana, had some drawings. They were really too similar. But essentially, the Supreme Court upheld that and said, yes, you know, you can protect uh, trade dress, this sort of color scheme, the the look and feel of of your restaurant or any other product for that matter. So that's that's a fairly famous case because that's something that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it wasn't it weren't restaurants that people were familiar with in, in, in California. So I was sort of an expert on the history of Taco Cabana and, and two pesos <laughs> when we were talking about that in property class my first year of law school. So you, you crushed it. And, and there was something weird about how the the resolution was ultimately Taco Cabana bought two pesos exactly yeah. except for one unit and the one unit was actually in the uh, basement at Greenway Plaza because it had been franchised and somehow the franchisee had changed it enough that he wasn't included in the so for I about, remember that location now about yeah, now five to seven years after that you could go get old school. Because I was a bit of a snob. I thought two pesos was better. Two, the 91 play. Yeah, like exactly. Kind of a breakfast classic. Yeah. yeah. And their nachos were great. So, yeah. I mean, but Taco Cabana is good. I like Taco Cabana. But, yes, two pesos was was a little bit better for, for us old school people. One of, the, one of the greatest things is so when I joined Stevens um, in the summer of 94, their top recommended stock was uh, Taco Cabana. And uh, all of the young analysts at Stevens were all loading up on this and they were buying call options and all this stuff. And uh, anyway, it was one of these ridiculous things where the call options were going to expire like in 27 minutes and the stock jumped 15%. So all these guys made like, you know, $35, but they all made money. <laughs> and they were all talking about it at the, at the next kind of happy hour he had. Man, that was a shrewd investment. Well, that's, that's, four, <laughs> that's 491 plates right there. So that's awesome. Exactly. So do you have kind of a, a kind of a, a lecture for on the IP side for a CEO kind of starting out a company, things they need to be thinking of? And then I'm going to follow that up with, do you have kind of the same rant for an employee going to work for a technology company? Sure, sure. So for the CEO, I mean, the, the, the thing to understand is you've got four basic areas of, of IP. You've got patents, you've got trademarks, you've got copyrights, and you've got trade secrets. And one of your earlier episodes, The Energy on Trial, they did a great job of, of talking about trade secrets. So I won't, I won't repeat everything yeah. that they said there, but they did a really, so if you all go back and look at the, listen to that episode, there's a really good discussion of, of trade secrets right there. So, um, I, you know, I think a lot, especially if you're a tech company, a lot of people start with, well, yeah, tech's real important. Let's do, let's do our patents. Uh, let's, let's file a lot of patent applications. That can be really expensive for a startup. Um, you know, certainly if you've got core technology, it's, it's worth having one or two patent applications. Um, you can save a little bit of money with patents by initially doing what's called a provisional patent, which is essentially that's a place saver where you, you're not sure you want to go full bore and spend all the money on a patent application, but you essentially have this core idea. You want to get that on file to make sure you establish priority over anybody else who might try to file a, file an application in the interim. And then, then within one year of that, you need to convert that to a regular patent application. And so the thing about a provisional application, it can be really informal. I mean, people have, have filed like PowerPoints or just a couple drawings with like one a one-page description of that patent. So you can do that. The, the limiting factor on that is your, your priority over that invention only uh, is, is as much as 
is only covers the detail you you put in that patent. So you can't just have like a one paragraph description and then one year later have a 20 page patent application and say, oh, well, my priority goes back to the date of the provisional patent. It would only cover what you actually disclose in that. So that is a money saving uh, opportunity is, is to start with a provisional patent. Don't spend as much money drafting it. You can say patent pending about when you're referencing your technology, even if you only have a provisional patent. Um, so that is a there's some value there. Um, and trademarks and copyrights, I think, because they're relatively inexpensive, a couple thousand dollars for a trademark application, assuming you don't conflict with somebody else's mark. I mean, maybe five hundred dollars for your first copyright application um, and, and a couple hundred dollars. You've talked me into it. You need to go file nimble fatty. We need to they, trademark. We can do that. We can do that. Trademark. We just need to figure out what your goods and services are. I, maybe a malt liquor or something <laughs> along those lines. So yeah, we can, we can figure that out. And, uh, well, again, the good thing about trademarks is you can file what's called an intent to use application. It used to be in the U S you had to actually be using it before you could file a trademark application, but you can now file an intent to use application. I've got this name, and I'm going to at at some point in the future uh, cover all of these products. And when you get when you see articles about like celebrities filing for trademark protection for their name on a whole bunch of different things, and Travis Kelsey was like in the news recently, probably because he's dating Taylor Swift, but he filed a bunch of trademark applications on all these products, the goods and products he was going to cover with Travis Kelsey. He's not actually providing any of those now, but. He's at some point has a legitimate has a legitimate intent to at some point provide those products in the future, uh, so that he can file you can file an intent to use application. So uh, that's a good way to start, even if you haven't started selling your products or selling or providing your services to file an intent to use trademark application. And then co copyright can be really important. Um, for sometimes it's like web con something as simple as web content. A lot of times. Another startup will come along as a as a competitor, and they'll they'll copy your web contact content to describe what they do. And if you've got a copyright registration, then you can you can get statutory damages for that. Source code is another thing. If you've got a really important uh, bit of software for your company, is you can uh, essentially copyright your source code. In which case, is there, is there anything there to? Yes, I want to protect it, but two, if I file this, other people can see it. Great question. So, so he, here's here's the issue with what you can do with copyrights is you, for for protecting your source code, you only need to file the first 20 pages and the last 20 pages of your source code. You essentially generate a PDF, file the first 20 pages, last 20 pages. Furthermore, you can redact out, cover in black, anything that you consider a trade secret. So if you've got a real important algorithm that you don't want the public to know about, you can you can cover that. Really, all the copyright is about is essentially notice of, hey, this software that I put together, I have I have copyrighted and or I have a registration, a copyright registration. And it's not to give everybody show the whole world exactly what you have covered. It's just to say, hey, you know, this this software called this that has this portion of so software in it. Uh, it is something that um, that is that is covered. So, yes, you can do that without revealing all your secrets. But you raise another important point with regard to trade secrets and patents. Is sometimes the the question is, in patents, you you can't be secretive. You have to disclose to the public what you're doing and the best way to do it. It's called best mode. It's something that you have to disclose in a patent application. So sometimes that's the the issue as well. Do we try to patent this or is it only is it only slightly different 
than what's out there before. So we might not even get a patent, but it's secretive enough or, or, or good enough that we don't want to disclose it to the public so that they can then just try to design around it and not know what we're doing, tweak something a little bit, avoid our patent and, and essentially compete with us. So that's one of the things that you have to consider uh, when you're, when you're look, trying to protect your IP is, do I keep it secret or do I try to patent it so that I have the exclusive right to use it for 20 years? And is this a fair statement that a lot of times, and I'll, I'll throw digital wildcatters kind of under the bus, you as an entrepreneur get going on stuff and you look up and you've just done nothing. And then, and then do you have to go back and, and remediate or are you able? Right. So that can be an issue with, with patents. Um, an issue is if, if you have sold or offered for sale your product for more than a year, then you're kind of out of luck and you can't patent that. Okay. Um, if you, it is important. It is better to try to file a patent application before you sell it at all. In the U.S., you've got essentially a one-year grace period. You're out there selling your product for six months. You file a patent application, no problem. But you couldn't patent it in Europe, for instance, uh, and I think Japan as well, too. So once you've sold your product, you've kind of lost your opportunity to file a, a patent that would, would, would could be, that would protect you in Europe, but you could still do it in the U.S. Trademark's not as much of an issue. Copyright, not as much of an issue. Um, you can, you can kind of go back and, and cover those things after copyright. Uh, one of the things that people don't realize is, is copyright. You actually have a copyright in any content that you create from the moment you create it. The only reason you need to register it is one, to give people notice so that they don't copy it. And two, if you want to sue in federal court for infringement of your copyright, you do need to have it registered. And the other benefit too, is if you register it within three months of when you create that content then you can, if somebody copies it, you can get what are called statutory damages. So minimum, it could be $10,000 per infringement, $100,000 for infringement. So if somebody knocks off one of your podcasts, you've got it registered and they- Clearly go, Nuclear Door City is, uh, exactly. we, need, we, need, we need to get that one registered. Exactly, yeah. You would, you would have, uh, you know, 10,000, uh, if, if somebody distributed 10,000 copies of it or sold 10,000 copies of it, you could not only get their lost profits, but you could get statutory damages, which are you know, $10,000 per infringement. Now, you're, as a practical matter, you're not going to get $10 billion for a copyright case, but you don't have to prove your damages if you've got a copyright registration and somebody that infringes that. that. You, could, you could potentially get just statutory damages based on the number of infringements. Are Europe and, and Japan and let's just say the rest of the world and exclude China, obviously, because they don't have any of this. But are they similar in that we'll give you exclusive rights for some period of time for uh, for patents? Is, is it the are, same kind of concept? Or? Th things are more consistent than you would think they are. And that does include China. We have a lot of clients who, who file, file patents in China. I file a lot of trademark applications in China. So it actually is pretty uniform. Um, for patents, you have something called the Patent Cooperation Treaty. I, I can't say that every country is in it, but over 100 countries are part of the Patent Cooperation Treaty, which essentially it is pretty standard. You can, you can file, you can either file, a, you could either, for instance, file a patent in the U.S. first, or you could just file a Patent Cooperation Treaty uh, application with the World Intellectual Property Organization. And then uh, you have a period of time. It's this one decision needs to be made at about 18 months. Then, then other decisions need to be made a little farther down the road. You have time then to decide what countries do I really want to go out to. So you can see how your product grows, where your market is. 
And uh, it's pretty consistent across all countries now that your patent coverage is 20 years from the time of your first application. It can expand a little bit if the patent office takes too long to examine it, but generally speaking, it's any kind, but you would need to file individual applications in all of the countries. The exception being there's a European patent office, which covers most of Europe. There's a couple African uh, treaties where you can cover multiple African countries. One is a lot of the French speaking countries. One is a lot of the English speaking countries, but for the most part, uh, you need to go to individual countries to file individual applications at some point after that PCT application to get coverage. Trademarks, there's a similar uh, treaty called the Madrid Protocol where you can essentially file a trademark application either through the World Intellectual Property Organization to cover multiple countries. About half the countries are probably treaty, uh, part of that treaty. Or if you can't use the Madrid Protocol application process, you can go to that country, uh, file an application, and if you do it within six months of your original application in the U.S., for instance, then they treat the filing date in that foreign country as the date of filing in the U.S. So it's actually there's actually more even countries that we are currently not exactly friends with or 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 have an economic interest with um, are for the most part parts of that that treaty, and there is actually a lot of cooperation and consistency across. Is it is it maybe just enforcement that's different? Like it is, you know, if if because at least at least the 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 redneck Texan view of the world is China just steals our stuff. There there is um, yes, it it would be hard to enforce in China, but however, we have found that there is a healthy fear of uh, the U.S. litigation system. So even if um, it is a company in China that you think is knocking off your trademark or knock, knocking off your product, maybe advertising on a website. There is a high level of efficacy from sending cease and desist letters to even Chinese-based companies saying, hey, you're advertising this on the web. You need to knock it off or you need to stop using my trademark. Um, and the, those websites tend to go away. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. It is, I mean, there is a fear that somehow they're going – I mean, if they're trying to import it into the U.S., they can get called hauled into U.S. courts. Um, but I'd say, yeah, if it's solely manufacturing infringement in China, there is a, um, I, I have I have not personally been involved with those, but I, you, there are some infringement suits that go on there as long as the Chinese government isn't one of the parties you're trying to sue. Um, yeah. I think there are, you know, who knows exactly how independent all these companies are over in, over in China, but um, there is actually uh, patent litigation in China. Now there are, Places like Africa and Brazil just takes forever that, you know, as a practical matter, it would be hard to enforce. Uh, but that China is not the is probably not the hardest place to enforce. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, would, I never would have guessed that. Now, so it sounds like to me, listening to you talk, if I'm an entrepreneur, I ought to like go buy a beer or have lunch with an intellectual property slash trademark type attorney just early days and at least get some sort of advice on, hey, you ought to be thinking about this, thinking about thinking about that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And you, you talked about employees too, leading into my long answer with your questions. Um, you know, that one thing you want to have early on is employment agreements with employees, especially if you have independent consultants. Uh, who aren't employees, you want to make sure that any IP that they create is being assigned to the company. Uh, it, it, as That essentially happens as a matter of default with employees, but it's still good to have those agreements. But if somebody's an, an 
an in, uh, sorry, an independent uh, consultant, those people, um, one thing about the patent system is the person who invents something is presumed to be the owner of that invention. So unless that person, if that person is an independent consultant, unless you have a formal agreement with them that they are assigning what you're paying them to create to the company, then it's kind of ambiguous who the owner of that is. So yeah, early on having agreements with employees and consultants um, indicating that they're going to assign any IP, be it trademarks or copyrights or or, or patents to you or anything else that they create and also uh, protecting the secrecy of that information because that's really what you need to do to show that something is is a trade secret. If you decide not to file a patent application and just want to protect your formulas or, or other inventions um, or processes, then you really do want to show that you have formal agreements with your employees showing that they have an obligation of confidentiality to protect that information. Oh, that's interesting. So that's, I mean, that's potentially just part of your onboarding. Absolutely. Yeah, you get onboarded. Here you go. Um, now let's 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 flip it. Wear your employee hat. What do I need to be thinking? Um, because practically speaking, at least my view of the world is big bad company with lots of money, lots of lawyers at their disposal use these type of things to keep you from working certain other places. Right. So the first thing would be if, if you're leaving one employer and going to work for another employer, do not take anything with you. Let me repeat that. <laughs> do not take anything with you. That is not your stuff. I don't, you know, I don't care if you, it was a great idea and you think of it as being yours. You, know, you don't want to just put everything on a hard drive and say, hey, well, this might be handy to use either to use later now and oh uh, by the way they can see that you put it right, on the hard drive exactly <laughs> there are for, forensic computer companies that will know exactly what you did don't email it to your home email address <laughs> and say hey this might be handy for later now you can talk to your boss you can get it in writing and say hey I, it would really be nice if i could take this form or hey i had this nice spreadsheet that i did that helps me you know convert metric to to, to standard imperial measurements or whatnot, you know, things like that. You can get permission to take things, but generally speaking, don't take stuff with you. And when you're, cause when you go to your new employer, one, they're probably going to have you sign an employment agreement that's that we're in which you say, I have not taken anything with, with me and I've not taken any trade secrets or confidential information from any previous employer. Um, you will, a lot of times in this industry, you will um, be asked to sign a, a confidentiality agreement, which is common, and those are fine. It may include a non-solicitation provision, which could include both not soliciting um, customers if you leave that employer and not soliciting other employees to come with you. And it might include a non-compete provision. Now, the good news is if for, for employees out there is non-competes as we know it are probably going to go away by about April of next year. And that is because the FTC has taken an interest in non-compete agreements. Uh, there, this trend has been happening for a while. <clears throat> there are certain states, for instance, that have started to adapt laws that say, well, you can't have non-competes for hourly workers. The, the problem with non-competes is that employers got greedy and you started to have things like non-competes for nail salons and non-competes for you know, people who were not in highly skilled areas or didn't have a lot of customer information or whatnot. So some of the states have sort of been moving in the direction of reining in non-competes. So now the FTC has essentially started to 
sue companies for non-competitive uh, activities because they're trying to enforce non-competes that are overly broad. And essentially, the FTC has already indicated that they're planning to ban all non-competes as they are related to employment relationships. We can talk about, uh, you know, if somebody sells a company, you could still probably enforce a non-compete against that person. But as far as employment relationships are concerned, as of about April, once the FTC is back to full strength and gets all the, the Republican spots filled along with the Democratic spots, they're going to be vote, vote on it. There's still going to be a Democratic majority. And non-competes for employees, any level of employees, are probably going to go away. Now, there well, could still stop be constitutional challenges, but that's probably going to happen. Well, we fundamentally fought a war over that, and the good guys won <laughs> that war. And so it's, it, it is kind of hard to, to, to justify the nail salon lady can't go next door there, for 25 cents more an hour. Exactly. Those are hard to justify. The ones I think you can justify is you know, high-end uh, CFOs who knows where all the, you know, all, all has all the customer relationships, a guy who's in a particular cutting-edge technology area where you'd like him to not go to a competitor for a year immediately afterwards. Now, that's that's why it's important to have trade secret protection and patent protection so he can go and, and compete but not um, not use exactly what you're doing and and certainly not use trade secrets to go to a competitor. And, and, and those sort of Trade secret violations will still be enforceable, but you can't, you're probably not going to be able to prohibit somebody from completely going to work uh, for a competitor. Now, Congress is starting to get involved. Congress may take a more moderate approach and perhaps allow non-competes for, for highly compensated executives or people in really highly technical areas, um, but, but they may not. I mean, it seems the trend is that, that non-competes are, are probably going to go away. You could still potentially have non-solicitation of customer um, agreements, but that would really depend on how restrictive those agreements are. If you're talking about just two competitors and you tried to say that someone could go and, and not solicit customers if, if they went to another company, well, that might effectively prohibit them from working for that other company. But if yeah. you're talking about an industry where you've got 20 different competitors and maybe the company you're leaving only has 5% of the market, well, you could go to a competitor and just not go after those customers, right. go after the other 95%. That wouldn't be really be an effectively a non-compete. So those sorts of agreements might still be enforceable. So two things on non-competes. My favorite non-compete story is you know, April, whatever it was, 26th, 27th, 2020, get on the phone, call Chuck, we're gonna need to let you go you know, because of performance and blah, blah, blah. Chuck, I just want you to know, we've had such a good partnership for 20 years we're willing to waive any non-compete arrangements we have in place. We didn't even look at those. We just, we want you to be able to go out and do your own thing, right? You know, as we are shutting down the world for COVID. So I said, well, I really appreciate that, guys. Just so you know, my starting place on the negotiations is I'm willing to take a lifetime ban from the industry. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, it was like, seriously? Um, one other bit of advice, and I want you to uh, opine on this and opine kind of legally, but also just practically is this. The biggest mistake I made at uh, Kane Anderson is the day I joined, you know, 20 some odd years before I signed an agreement that in effect talked about my severance, et cetera, when I left and just never gave it a second thought. You know, I mean, here I was running the group, you know head fundraiser and all that. And, you know, 
clearly, if I'd been more self-serving in my life, at some point I would have said, you know what? The largest private equity fund in Keynes history is not going to get raised unless I'm here. Hey guys, those severance provisions don't apply anymore. Here's the new game is what I should have done. I just never right. thought that way. And certainly that's always an option. But that's, that, right. that's my advice is you ought to be looking at that regularly. Even if you've been at a company 10 years, you never know when there's going to be a new CEO. You never know when things are going to change. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, that's something you can always look at. I mean, any time, um, and that's something the company will always look at too. Anytime you're given equity, uh, there's probably going to be non-compete provisions in that in addition to your employment agreement. And that's something that people need to keep in mind when they're leaving a company is that even if they don't have a non-compete in their employment agreement, they might have one in their equity, any, any agreement related to equity they were granted. And those are likely to still be enforceable, even if the FTC uh, changes the rule with regard to employees, because the idea there is, hey, you've got a stake in this company, you're an owner of this company, and you going out and competing with this company, at least in the first year or two after you're there, that's going to be inconsistent with with this these benefits that this company has given you to share in the benefit of the company. So those are the kinds of things that might still be enforceable. But absolutely, from the employee standpoint, I mean, those sorts of things are are always potentially negotiable. With with equity grants, there's usually a pretty standard non compete provision, um, and but but certainly severance provisions and amounts of severance are something that you could reconsider as as you get higher up in the, in the company if they really still want to keep you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they obviously didn't. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of a backhanded compliment where they're like, Chuck, we're not really worried about you committing to, to be honest with you. Let's just start there. Yeah. No, that's uh, and uh, so kind of kind of close out on all this sort of stuff. Give me an anecdote, a story a bit of advice, whatever, just crazy outside the box, like a case you worked on or just, or just something. Yeah, I, I think, um, there was one case I worked on where essentially, um, we'd had an employee leave and, and our, our client had hired an employee who had left another company and he took a bunch of drawings with it. And, um, we, it was a bad situation and there was not, there was not something that it made sense to fight for a year or two. And so we actually, as we dug deeper with this guy, he had this hard drive that had a lot of the drawings on it. And so he's at company C now he had left company B recently. And on this hard drive, he also had a bunch of drawings from company A, the company <laughs> he had been at before the company that had sued us. So that was a situation where we sat down with the other side and we're like, Hey, we're going to come clean. He took a bunch of stuff with him. And it's really, really the best thing to do is if you're in a situation as a lawyer or, or an employee and you've left and you realize you took a bunch of stuff with you, even accidentally. Sometimes people don't realize that they have this stuff until they look back at their email and they emailed themselves something one or two years ago that they kind of forgot about. But that's still company property right. that, that if you get sued, that's going to look bad. So in this situation, it just didn't make any sense for us to just fight, fight, fight. But the kind of the good thing is we'd realized that this employee had not only drawings from his previous employer, but the employer before that. So we essentially sat down with the lawyers and said, yeah, I think we've both got a problem here because this yeah. goes back and this is all going to come out if we get into, into litigation. And so that's just a case that got resolved because it was, you know, this was a guy who truly thought everything he worked on was his. Yeah. And so it went back, it probably frankly went back two companies before that. Right. And so that was just a situation that, um, 
that it, it's just sometimes it's just better to sit down and, and, and talk um, than it is to just fight. I spent a lot of time convinced, talking with clients about, look, I, I'm in a business where you pay me to litigate things, right? That's how I make my money. That's how I make my living. That's how I send my kids to college. So if I am telling you not to do something, you should listen to me seriously because <laughs> yeah. it, is not, it is not in my self-interest self to do so. So it's like, look, here is why we should figure out a way to resolve this because this looks bad. And what I say in trade seeker cases is there's always something, right? No matter what side you're on, there's always something that the defendant has forgotten about that, or they took with them because they didn't really think it was, they thought it was their stuff or they didn't really think of it as being confidential or they emailed themselves something or They've got an old laptop that still has a bunch of stuff left on it. So if you get in one of these trade seeker cases and you think, oh, well, my employee told me I'm completely, he's completely clean. He didn't take anything with him. He's probably got something. He or she no. probably have something somewhere. So it's, you know, if there is an inkling of something that somebody did bad, um, there are probably more things out there that, that they've forgotten about that are, are going to look bad if, as you get deeper into litigation. So as my attorney, I will come clean on this when, uh, so, you know, they, they call up, they fire me and COVID hits and we're in lockdown, all that. And so it probably took me about eight months before I cleaned out my office just cause everybody was scared. And, and, uh, I got along really well with the, the general counsel at Kane Anderson, Jarvis Hollingsworth. Great dude. Anyway, I was just texting with him. I'm like, Hey, when can I come down and get my stuff? And he said, he said, hey, you know, and he said, any chance the Saturday works? And I go, yeah, no, it would actually work great. He goes, I'm going to be down there all day because technically I kind of have to be around. Not that we're worried about anything, but, you know, I need to be around. So great. So I go down there and I walk into Jarvis's office and I go, Jarvis, I know you're going to have doubts about this, but the snake skinned covered chair in my office. I'm taking that. And he goes, well, okay, you're more than welcome to it. I go, no, I actually paid for it. Here's my expense. Danny wouldn't, Danny paid for, you know, Kane paid for all my office furniture, but they drew the line at the snake cupboards. So I took that. And then the other thing I just thieved is uh, we had signed a letter of intent with Aubrey McClendon on a deal and I just stole it. Gotcha. I, I just flat out it's it's an aubrey signature and i stole it for, so. for a souvenir sure it's for sure. a souvenir they could come after me so well keith you were cool to come on and talk about all this stuff well thanks yeah thanks for having me how so. do uh how do people reach you so the firm i'm at now and been there for about 10 years is, is ewing and jones it's ewingjones.com uh if you want to just go to my last name is spelled jasma j-a-a-s-m-a if you go to jasma.com that goes right to my my firm website or my right to my page on my firm website or you can email me at k-j-a-a-s-m-a at ewing jones.com always happy to talk about trademarks copyrights patents what have you always always happy to to help out and uh, i can i can tell you about the uh i can tell you some chuck anecdotes if, <laughs> if you're nice to me <laughs> or if you're mean to right me. or yeah. some early days of the podcast anecdotes so. <laughs> no the the one thing I, I will say i'll give you i'll give you props for this is i've had several people that have called with situations of trying to untangle themselves and uh all uh, all have come back raving about your help. Well, so. appreciate it. Yeah, and we we do a lot of things like uh, negotiating exits of executives from from corporations and, and and companies like that, things like that. So a lot of the employment we stuff we do is we do a lot of employer side stuff, but also um, yeah, executives and and negotiating severance packages and and, and things like that.
anything we didn't cover that you'd want to? Uh, no. Um, I, I just, well, I, I just want to apologize for one statistic I helped put out there in the ether, in the ether. I think when you were talking about starting this podcast, I, I, I told you, um, that, um, I gave you a statistic that I don't know whether it's true or not, but I had heard it somewhere else that, um, of nine out of 10 podcasts don't make it past 10 episodes. So I just want to congratulate you on, <laughs> on making it well past 10. And I've heard that repeated as gospel on, on yes, this website. Yeah, so no, we, um, uh, we so, celebrated yeah. number 11. But, I, yeah. I'm not sure we, not sure we titled it. Nah, 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 Keith, look at this. But <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm just honored to be back here on a very special 138th episode after, <laughs> after all this time that uh, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here for this, this was, anniversary ep episode. It was great. Um, I'm in this breakfast club that got started 20 some odd years ago. And these guys got together and the whole concept of let's get a bunch of people that we normally like if we're lawyers, let's get some bankers, let's get some other folks cross section of life and let's just grow old together. And one of the founders was Ben Herzog and they were going, okay, who are we going to invite as the initial class into this breakfast club? So they invite all these people. Three years later, Ben invites his best friend and we're kind of like, why did it take three years for your best friend to be invited in? I mean, I thought, you know, there was the best friend, there was the priest. I thought I was like episode nine or 10, Chuck's, Chuck's going to run out of content. You know, I'm sure I'll get that call any day, but you know, then I, I appear on Fox morning news one morning and Chuck's like, Hey, you should come on the podcast. Yeah. So, so that's all it, all it takes. You get in the, the, the big media and then, uh, then Chuck finds you worthy to come on his podcast. So. Oh, 